0: In our recent study, I referred to General Douglas MacArthur, the commander of the Allied Forces during World War II. After the surrender of Japan, MacArthur led in the ceremony of the settlement aboard the USS Missouri. The terms of surrender were were signed by dignitaries on September 2nd, 1945. The war was finally over. I found it interesting, especially in light of just commissioning a couple to uh, the field. It's interesting that when he was in charge of Japan's reconstruction, Douglas MacArthur issued a challenge to the Western world asking for 1,000 missionaries to come over and for 10 million Bibles to be sent. And many responded. In fact, Shepherd Seminary just this spring graduated a student who is now in Japan as a third-generation missionary pastor, following in the footsteps of his grandfather, who was among the many missionaries, certainly to answer the call of God, but to step forward at such a ripe time in that particular country's history and future. answering the call. For one particular soldier following the signing of surrender and the documents uh, thereof on September 2nd, the war never never quite ended. You may have heard of him. He was called the No Surrender Soldier. His name is uh, Hiru Onada. And I did a little research. I believe he is still alive. I know his wife is still alive. He was left on one of the Philippine Islands the uh, island of Lubang, and he was under orders as a Japanese soldier to keep the area secure while the rest of the Japanese forces evacuated the island. Nine months later, the war was over, Japan surrendered, but Onoda got the news and refused to believe it. He believed it was Allied propaganda. In fact, for the next many years, he would live off the land and the mountains, raiding the fields, the gardens of local citizens, ignoring the leaflets that were even dropped from planes, announcing to him Japan's surrender. In fact, Japan was now an ally of the United States. Again, he believed that was all propaganda. Nearly a million dollars were expended and 13,000 men were used to finally corner him. Finally, in March 1974, if you can imagine it, Onada was found and he was brought before his former uh, commander, the man that he said he had to hear from personally. He heard the terms of surrender from his former commander, and then Onada surrendered his rusty sword to President Marcus. And the war was finally over. If you can imagine it, and, and, and again, he, he was heralded, in fact, to this day as something of a, of a herald of courage and bravery, because he just kept at it. Imagine, he was 22 years old when he was left on that island, and when he finally left the island to go home, he was 52 years old. I find that story compelling, On a number of different fronts, not the least of which is the cost and effort expended to get this one soldier to understand the war was over. Imagine over a period of 29 years, several countries worked together, enlisting some 13,000 personnel, spending nearly a million dollars to deliver the news of peace to one man. Now you know where I'm going with this. You're not asleep yet, are you? especially in light of commissioning a couple, shouldn't this be the urgency of the church? Is this not the commission by God himself to the body of Christ to deliver to a world that's at war with him that in effect the war is over? It's already been championed by Christ. Sign the peace treaty. Accept the terms of surrender and peace and come to have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Is it any wonder that you come to the end of the Bible and instead of God saying, I've done everything I can do and I'm really tired of it. I've tried to get the word out. We've done everything possible and everybody effectively when you consider the, the, the small number of believers on the planet in any given generation, just about everybody doesn't believe. So we're just going to wash our hands of the matter and just bring on eternity. Now you get to the end of the book. And there's one final, gracious invitation. We're in the epilogue of Revelation, chapter 22. Let's pick it up where we left off at verse 10. John records and he that is the angel companion and he said to me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near now recall that Daniel had been told exactly the opposite he was given a vision of the future as an old testament prophet and he was told keep the vision secret Daniel 8:26 Again, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told by God, conceal the words and seal up the book until the end of time. Well, with the creation of the church and the church age beginning, we're in the end of time. And so now these future events could happen at any time, so get the word out. Heaven or hell is at stake. Invite the world to surrender to the sovereign. John adds to the urgency of the church there in verse 10 of chapter 22. The time is near. In other words, it's just around the corner. It's nearer now than ever, right? And John writes, he is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Get it out. Don't keep it under lock and key. Don't chain it to a pulpit. Don't keep it in some unknown language. Get it into the hands of people. Get the word out. I think it's interesting that he's told not to seal up the words Tus lagus, you recognize the word lagos in the plural form, the words of Scripture are to be open, and that's significant. He wants the actual words, not just somebody's thoughts, not just some preacher's opinion, not just some denominational party line. We're not delivering to you the Baptist version. This is the Word of God. It is His to be expounded and proclaimed, which is another way of saying, according to what John was told, the book of Revelation, in fact, every book of the Bible, but certainly this book of prophecy is an open book. Don't conceal it. Study it. Learn it. Prepare for it. In fact, to fail to preach the truth of Revelation is to rob the believers of the end of the divine story of history and all of its wonder and its fulfillments, all of its glory that we have only been given just a slice and a sliver to be able to anticipate it even more. We don't want to fail to deliver the truth of Revelation. It robs our unbelieving generation of, of all that will happen. The wrath of God which is coming, the final warning of His judgment, Where he will confine the unbeliever forever in hell. So, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 22, right at the outset, is nothing less than the command to, to expound the written word. And what happens when the word of God is expounded from the pulpit, from classrooms, from cubicles, over the backyard fence? What happens? People are then categorized or classified easily into one of two categories or camps. That's what John says here in verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. In other words, in light of the coming of God and and the wrath of God, the one who says, "Ah, I'm going to keep on doing wrong. Okay, then let him continue. The one who is filthy, he writes, will be filthy still. You could render that even more. Let him grow in his filthiness. Let the one who is righteous even more. In light of what we learn, practice righteousness. And the one who is holy, that is declared, separate, the possession of God, keep himself even more holy in practical terms. In other words, the response of people to the proclamation of the truth fixes their eternal destiny. It is demonstrated in their lives to to reveal which direction they're heading. To some, the exposition of God's word will cause hearts to be softened in belief. And even today... It will cause some to become even more hardened in unbelief as one more invitation is discarded and ignored. To some, Paul wrote it this way. To the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.16, our gospel is the aroma of death. To others, it is the aroma of life. Put that in the modern vernacular and you deliver the gospel to some people and they'll say to you, that stinks. That's rubbish. That's rotten. I would never believe that to others. That's wonderful. I will believe. Paul wrote for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's rubbish. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. I don't know about you, but I've had a few doors slammed in my face. I've been told a few times where to go. It's never heaven, by the way. <laughs> Yet I was reminded in my study of a recent encounter with a woman in my church study who came to see me after delivering the gospel, wept over and over again with incredulous joy. And she said, I, I, no one ever told me before that my sins could be forgiven, and it is... Freely offered. Or or an individual that just happened to come to another meeting this past week in the parking lot, met by somebody who knew the gospel, began to deliver it to him, and, and he wanted to hear more, and she came in and got some material, went out in the parking lot, and gave more, and right there in the parking lot, he prayed to receive Christ as his Savior in the parking lot. To some, it is the aroma of death. I want nothing to do with it. It stinks. To others, the aroma of life. I must have it, and I will believe it. John writes that the preaching of the words of this book will either bring great blessing to many, but it will also repel others in disgust, bringing anger or ridicule or maybe even apathy to the truth of the end times. In fact, Jesus Christ continues to be today the most mocked religious leader around the globe. I was given a newspaper clipping this past week by someone in our church, and I always appreciate when you, when you read the newspaper for me and then give me what I only need to read and see. It's wonderful. Somebody this, this morning after the second hour gave me this magnet U.S. News, Secrets of Christianity, the Lost Gospels, the... Hey, uh, the Three Marys and all that, and we're going to deal with that as we talk about how we got our Bible as we come to verse 18 where we're warned not to add or take away, and we're going to deal with that. So I thanked her because she, she gave me this magazine and gave me some good illustrations about what not to believe. I got this clipping, and it showed how one network is planning a cartoon series that's going to be launched, I guess, in the fall on the life of Christ. He's going to be depicted, and I quote as a regular guy who moves to New York because he wants to escape from having to live under his father's enormous shadow. His father, God the Father, the father of Jesus, is caricatured as an apathetic old man who would rather play video games than listen to his son talk about his life. Now, why would anybody be interested in watching that? Why would, how, how would anybody think that's funny? Is it because that Christianity is one of the world's major religions and you get attention by mocking it? Is it? Is it there, there's delight in, in mocking taboos, perhaps some of that, but John would say that, that those who refuse the gospel glory in their unbelief and they become even more unholy. Let's find new ways to mock him. They're not satisfied with what's being done today. Let's come up with new stuff and they gather a sense of false security by their solidarity. More and more people, we must be right. It's a false sense of security. In fact, Peter would write, in the last days, these are the last days since the church was created, In the last days, mockers are going to come, and they've come in every generation, saying, where is the promise of his coming? (laughs) You guys, all this talk about Jesus coming back, he makes songs about it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You can't be serious. He's just another prophet. He's a good man who got a bum rap, tough luck, end of story. You would think that God would say, you've heard enough from me, and yet he says, no, let me give you one more invitation before we wrap the book up. He's given the church the command to expound the written word. And then he gives us the credentials of the living word. You're going to find some titles, and it's all sort of bundled up now in this paragraph. Titles of Christ. Uh, you Notice he's the one speaking in verse 12. Where he says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. Take note, he says. Watch out. Look for it. I'm coming quickly. In other words, it's going to happen before you know it. The king is indeed coming. and He will have full and final judgment. I'm going to have my reward with me to render every man to every man according to what he has done. We've already covered the final judgment as the unbelieving world is judged according to their deeds. This isn't by way of reminder. This doesn't mean people are going to hell because they were really bad and any more than believers are going to heaven because they're really good. John's going to clarify that in verse 14. We'll get there in a moment. Before we get to that verse, I want you to notice the distinction is going to be in their relationship with the cross work of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice, as Jesus is speaking, he gives the credentials for the gospel that he has delivered, and the credentials are in himself. Maybe you could number. We're going to cover five of them very quickly. Look at verse 13. Here's the first one. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is the fourth and final time you will read this phrase or title. Alpha and Omega, if it was written in English, it would be translated literally, I am A to Z. I am a sub and substance of all that could be written about truth. That's me. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this title, Alpha and Omega, was used in reference to God the Father in chapter 1. Again, it's used to refer to God in chapter 2. 21, verse 6. But then it's used to refer to Jesus Christ in chapter 22. You add to that title, Alpha and Omega, the two following titles you have here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, I am the first and the last, I am the beginning and and the end. You also discover that those titles are used in reference to God in chapter 21. And now of Christ in chapter 22. Centuries earlier, God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, verse 6, and he said, I am the first and I am the last. You can only have one first and last. You see, all three titles claimed by both God the Father and now God the Son can apply only to a non created, eternally existing God. God the Father, God the Son, other verses tell us of God the Spirit. These titles alone are convincing declarations that Jesus Christ claimed to be, in essence, divinely equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus is here actually adopting and claiming divine titles. For those who say, and they'll show up every once in a while at your door, that Jesus never said he was God, need to go to Revelation chapter 22. He says, I am the same thing God said in Isaiah 44, the first and the last, A to Z, from beginning to end. He's claiming these himself. He's either deluded, he's a blasphemer, a liar, or he's telling the truth that he is indeed an uncreated, eternally son, God the son who took on flesh and came to offer up then in his own death death a sacrifice for the terms of surrender and the conditions necessary for a peace treaty to be drawn up between that which represents the wrath of God and fallen man. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it all, and you get to the end here, and he says so. He's the fulfillment of 300 prophecies of the Old Testament, He's he's the fulfillment of pictures and types. He he is the ark of Noah. Those who enter the ark are saved from the wrath of God. He is the picture of showbread, the bread of life born in Bethlehem, the, the house of bread. He's the candle. He's the brazen altar. He's the kinsman redeemer who came to buy a foreign bride out of poverty. See, Jesus Christ is not merely a good man or a good teacher or even a misguided martyr. He is God the Son, infinite, eternal, boundless, timeless. He is the second person of the triune God. He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. These titles relate to his eternality and deity, but they also refer to his authority. He indeed has the power to judge, to determine, to rule. The rabbis had been teaching centuries before the the incarnation of God when he he took on flesh that, that God was the beginning, the middle, and the end. They'd been teaching that for centuries. They taught that since he was the beginning, he'd received his power from no one. Since he was the middle, he shared his power with no one. Since he was the end, he gives his power to no one. Now, if these first three titles don't settle the score that he is indeed equal with the Father, fully divine, you'll find another title here in the middle of verse 16. Look there, where Jesus Christ calls himself the root and descendant of David. The root and descendant of David. Now I want you to follow this. Jesus Christ says, I am the origin of the Davidic line, and I am a descendant of that same line. Now how can someone be both an ancestor of David and a descendant of David without being really mixed up? Some of you have grandchildren. I know it because that's all we hear about whenever we're around you. They're wonderful, aren't they? They are wonderful. They're wonderful. Amen? They're wonderful because you've dramatically changed. That's why. You never let your children have ice cream before bed. Now it's a meal for your grandkids. (laughs) Whatever you like. Parents are trying or working overtime to, to civilize the little barbarians. And you come over and you say, where's my little angels? Fallen angels. But they are. I love my maternal grandmother. She lived in... Town and and I've often spoken of her. It's fun to be her grandchild. We would rotate the three brothers and I. And you go over to her house. She let me drink coffee at age seven. <laughs> Is that great or what? And that was that was inter- That was big time because back then they believed that it would stunt your growth. And right, you remember hearing that It'd ruin your memory and something else. I can't remember. <laughs> She would let us pick out the cereal of our choice and I would always pick out Captain Crunch and I could eat the entire box at one sitting when I went over. Captain Crunch and coffee. Man, that was living. <laughs> All we had at my house was bran flakes. And now I'm old enough to know why. <laughs> Still don't like it, but you got to eat it, right? Well, as, as wonderful and as perfect and as brilliant and smart as your grandchildren are. If one of your grandchildren started saying that they'd been around longer than you, if they grew up actually believing that they were older than you, you'd be worried. They were a little off. That's why Jesus Christ made headlines and enemies, when he said as a young man to the Jewish leaders one day, Before Abraham was, I am. I'm older than Abraham. Now here in Revelation, in this title, Jesus is saying, I am the root of David. That as I was around long before King David's family tree ever sprouted limbs and leaves. I predate David. David. But that isn't all. He's also saying, I am a descendant of David. How can that be? There's only one way. Jesus Christ had to be fully God and fully man. He has to be God in order to predate David. And he has to be man in order to be born into the family, the lineage of King David. Both are true. In his deity, Christ is the root of David. David. In his humanity, he is the descendant of David. He's both. He is effectively saying, I am the God-man. I'm the root and descendant of David. There's one more title Christ adopts in verse 16. In fact, it's the only time in the entire Bible the full description of this title is actually attributed to the Lord. Note there, he's called the bright morning star. It's a wonderful title. What we call in our culture today a star actually originates in the Bible. Somebody really famous, special, is a star. Daniel in his prophecy said those choice ambassadors of God and the gospel are going to shine as, they're gonna be stars. So to speak. Even the angels at the dawn of creation were called morning stars. Job chapter 38, verse 7. One particular angel let it go to his head. And in his rebellion, he decided he would be the only star, that his throne would ascend above the heights. And, of course, you know his name was Lucifer. Lucifer can be translated day, star. And he said, I will be the brightest and the greatest. Here in Revelation, Jesus Christ, for the first time in its fullest expression, calls himself the bright morning star. And the conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, I believe he wants us to come to is inescapable. Jesus Christ intends to call attention to the fact that Satan in all of his attempts throughout world history to usurp his glory, to steal the worship of God away has utterly failed. Jesus Christ, not Satan, is the bright morning star that is he, is, he is bringing about the dawning of an eternal day. Not the usurper. Not the one who masquerades, even now as an angel of light, but Christ himself. I found it interesting as Henry Morris provoked my thinking, he said the entire history of the world, the entire word of God has been occupied directly or indirectly with the great conflict of the ages between God the Son and Satan, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, and the serpent. Satan claimed to be the rising star who would exalt his throne, but in the end his star has fallen. On the other hand, Morris writes, the Lord Jesus Christ was and is the true morning star, the bright morning star. His light will never be dimmed and he will never fall. So you come to the end of the Bible, and the end of human history as we know it, as the eternal state begins, and the message is rather clear. Satan, the usurper, loses, and Jesus Christ wins, effectively, that's been true already. The battle is already over. We live from the vantage point of victory already gained by our champion Christ, right? Our position is already in Him, and in the mind of God, Ephesians tells us, we're already seated in the heavenlies. The the problem we have is we wrestle with this body of flesh so that our practice conforms to our position. And that battle will only grow greater. For those of you who are young in the faith, I need to tell you, it only grows greater until the day we are perfected, that day, which is the day of Jesus Christ. Those who've surrendered to him have the promise of being on the inside. Those who refuse to surrender are given the promise of being on the outside. That is the expression for those condemned to everlasting judgment. So how important is the truth of this book? This book effectively is a fork in the road. Which way are you going? Toward, and with those who will be on the inside of the city of God and those who desire the city of man. Well, John writes, back in verse 14, look there, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into, inside... The city. This borrows from the language of chapter 7, where we learned that the believers had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The point isn't how good they were at washing their robes and did you get enough dirt on to get inside. No, the point is they trusted in the sacrificial, atoning crosswork of Jesus Christ. His blood sacrifice, exposed to their sin, washed them. And John writes here that they and all of us who have done the same will have access to the tree of life. Earlier in chapter 22, John described heaven as a place with the throne of God and the river flowing through it, and on either side the orchards of trees, the tree of life and that species bearing fruit. It was both literal and it is illustrative. We will enjoy that which represents everlasting life. John writes here in verse 14, look then, we will enter into this city past the gates. We learn those gates were pearls, each gate a pearl the size of a stadium. But the main point is clear. We get into heaven. We get into heaven. Why? We get inside the city of God. How? We get into the glory of God and enjoy His presence. How? Because we've come to the cross That which bore the Lamb of God, and we believed by the grace of God. We had nothing to add, nothing to offer but sin. But we accepted the Savior. Now would you notice those who aren't on the inside, that is the second category. Those those are the ones on the outside. Look at verse 15. The, The verse begins, outside, outside. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the moral persons, murderers, idolaters. Let's take them one at a time. Outside are the dogs. The dogs are on the outside. What does that mean? Well, I got an email from a guy this week. He said, I knew knew you'd be covering this verse. And as the owner of cats, I was pleased to read that in the book of Revelation, dogs don't get into heaven. There's no verse that says cats can't. And I guess I deserved that. But I couldn't believe it. So I did a little Greek word study, found that the word translated dogs here, if you transliterate it into Aramaic and then back into Latin and spell it backwards, it actually says feline. (laughs) You believe that? No, good. Those were my words, not God's words, okay? All right, back to the real truth. The word for dogs here is a word used in the Bible for people of, of low repute. The scavenging dogs that milled around the village dumps became the illustration for men who chose sin, loved it. Loved filthiness. Lived to lie, lived to steal, lived to corrupt. To call a person a dog in the Old Testament and in the New Testament was to simply refer to someone of low character. John, as the word sorcerers, the word pharmakia, gives us the word for drugs, drug user. Here in this context, more than likely, the use of drugs as it relates to occultic practices. John adds immoral persons from the word pornos, gives us our word pornography. It's a word that refers to those who engage in sexual activity outside the bonds and blessing of marriage. John next adds the word murderer. These also appeared in an earlier list we studied at length, chapter 21. It's a word that refers to the taking of a life without just cause. John adds the word idolater. It's the one who chooses to worship someone or something, themselves being the primary idol, rather than worshiping the one true and living God. Then he adds at the end of verse 15, and everyone who loves and practices Lying. Frankly, there are only two categories, though. Those on the inside of heaven and those on the outside. We know that we're sinners. In fact, this congregation will be guilty of of every one of these sins. In fact, according to James chapter 2, we're all guilty of every one of them. For to offend in one point of the law is to be guilty of all. So we're all corrupted... We're all depraved, we're all fallen, we're all in deep trouble. We are all sinners, and we have all fallen short of what? The glory of God. The point here is that these people on the inside wanted the Savior more than they wanted their sin, and the people on the outside wanted their sin more than they wanted the Savior. And God gave them their wish. You can have the sin you cherish, you can have the sin you love, you can have the life you want. But you can't have that and at the same time want to live with the Savior. My friend, what have you chosen? If today was the end of your life, what would your life reveal regarding your choice? Maybe you say, well, I've heard enough. I, I want to be on the inside, not the outside. Then this last invitation is especially for you. We've been given the command to expound the written Word. We've been given the credentials of the living Word. and Now we're given the invitation to live forever in the presence of the living Word. This is the only way. Verse 17, look there. The spirit and the bride say what? What's that next word? Say it out loud. Come. Come. And let the one who hears say what? Come. Come. And let the one who is thirsty what? Come. Come. One author said it this way, and I agree, the most wonderful word in the gospel is the little word come. Come. Whosoever will may what? come. All that the Father hath given to me, that's the initiating work of God's electing grace. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, that's the work of you exercising faith, saying yes to Jesus Christ. Whoever comes, I will in no wise cast out those who come. I like the way Dio Moody simplified it all when he said there are two categories of people in the world the whosoever wills and the whosoever won't. Which one represents you? I will, I have, I haven't, I won't. The invitation here from the Spirit and the Bride and all who hear that is those who believe by faith would you notice this is also a prayerful desire and it's an invitation it's something we say to God and it's something we say to the world look there the spirit of the bride all who hear and believe by faith say come lord jesus that is we want the presence of the lord we want to we want to be with the alpha and omega we want this thing to get moving from our perspective it's way too slow Come, Lord Jesus. But to the world, we say, Come to the Lord Jesus. We say both. Come, Lord Jesus. And to those in our world, Come to the Lord Jesus. Like like Philip, who came to Christ, was called to be a disciple of Christ, and he left as soon as he could, and he went and he got Nathaniel, and he said to Nathaniel, Come! Come and see! That is the desire of the church for our world as we go out and we find people. And may I ask you today, are you thirsty? Are you bankrupt? God, wonderful news. God has something to offer the thirsty. And it doesn't cost anything. Did you notice that? Without cost. You can drink the water of salvation And it's free because Jesus Christ paid it all. Come. On the last day of the Feast of Booths, inside the city of Jerusalem, on the last day, Jesus Christ stood and he, if you can just imagine, people everywhere. I don't know if he found a perch or a step or something, but he stood and he cried. That is, he shouted, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine? Why say that and why say that then? Because every day during this festival, the priest had taken a golden pitcher And he had paraded through the streets with ceremony and the people following along behind him and eventually he reached the pool of Siloam and he filled the pitcher with water and he marched back and around and through the water gate and there were those who followed him chanting the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 12, verse 3, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. But on the last day, the last day, they took the palm branches from which they would constructed their little booths where they'd sleep uh, as a way of illustrating their thankfulness to God who kept them during the exodus while they lived in the wilderness. And they'd take those palm branches. And while the priest with his empty pitcher walked through the streets of Jerusalem, they followed behind them and they were waving. They would be waving their, their palm branches. Eventually, the priest would reach the Pool of Siloam, fill his pitcher up, walk back, pour the water out onto the brazen altar. Uh, and, and some of them before just doing that would walk around the altar a few times and then they would all chant the prayer of Isaiah's prophecy Oh, bring now then thy salvation. Bring it on. We do want a drink, we do want salvation. We're thirsty. On that day, Jesus Christ effectively says, I'm here. God has answered your prayer. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. And I will give you everlasting life. If anyone is thirsty, now the book ends. Come. Let him come to me, no one else will do. Everywhere else you go to drink, you'll leave thirsty yet again. The invitation, then, because we're here, is still open in this age. If you want forgiveness from sin, a life led by the Redeemer, the Savior, who is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star of the one heralding the coming of a new eternal day, come to Him alone. It's another way of saying Surrender your rusty sword to the champion. Stop hiding out in the mountains of your own sin, your own will, your own way. Accept the terms of surrender and sign your name to the peace treaty of everlasting life and you will find, having signed it already, the name of Jesus Christ alone would you pray those of you who know Christ as your personal savior would you thank him that he was indeed not a deluded man not just a good teacher a moral leader he is indeed the divine son of God the one who took on flesh so that he could experience physical death and the shedding of blood as our final sacrifice would you thank him that by his grace your eyes have been opened to the gospel and you are on the inside I mean this is the inside of what really matters you can be on the outside of your family on the outside of the club on the outside of work you can be on the outside but this is what matters are you inside thank him for that While you're thanking Him, perhaps you're here today and you know this invitation is for you. It has your name written all over it. Maybe you're hiding out. Maybe you're running in the wrong direction. Maybe the fork in the road has taken you the wrong way by your own unbelief. Today, hear the Spirit. Hear the bride, the believing church. Join those whose ears have been opened and eyes opened. We're saying to you, come. Come. Today. If you'd like to come and you'd like to settle it, it'll be a delight to pray with you. You may need help with the gospel. Maybe you've had it all tangled up by the church. And the church has done a wonderful job of, of adding all sorts of things to this which Christ said is without cost. We'd be happy to clarify it for you. This may be your last invitation. Hear God through us say, Come.